Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 79, How to Engage Cynical Employees, featuring Bob Kelleher, author of the new book, Employee Engagement for Dummies. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Our guest today is Bob Kelleher. He is the author of the brand new book, Employee Engagement for Dummies. And he was chosen to write that book because he had previously authored one of the world's best-selling employee engagement books. It was called Louder Than Words, 10 Practical Employee Engagement Steps That Drive Results. Bob Kelleher, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Uh, hi, Jesse. Uh, I'm delighted to be here again, and thank you for having me. Yeah, we enjoyed interviewing you back on episode 12 to talk about the, uh, your second book called Creative Ship which was a great conversation. I encourage our listeners to go back to that book. Now, I have to say, when I saw that the book was coming out, Employee Engagement for Dummies, I had some skepticism. I've read other dummies books before, got some value out of them. But for some reason, I just thought, man, uh, employee engagement cannot, it's either going to be done too simplistically or in too boring, kind of like an encyclopedic format if you try to take that topic in the dummies book. But your book really surprised me. It was both very enjoyable to read with lots of stories and humor. But I think, as I heard you mentioned, your goal was to create the single greatest employee engagement resource out there. And I think you might have succeeded. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. Uh, you know, it's funny, your your reluctance or your skepticism kind of mirrored my skepticism when Wiley Publishing and Sons first contacted me to write it, maybe for slightly different reasons. You know, I I, uh, I originally thought, well, geez, my, my clients, my readers aren't dummies. But then when I learned about the Dummies franchise, 250 million in print, 30 uh, languages translated, uh, the single greatest book franchise in history, and the fact that they would give me, um, you know, kind of license to really write the greatest resource on engagement that's out there, uh, it became kind of intoxicating to kind of tackle this project. And and, and as it turned out, it really was... um, uh, probably uh, more of an effort than I ever thought because it's, you know, <laughs> 350 pages and, and it has to be, you know, well-researched and chock full of uh, best practices and stories. And it can't, you know, it can't just replicate, you know, prior books. Uh, the readers want new, they want fresh. And it really it really was a lot of fun to write. And the end result uh, has been, been uh, something that we're, we're actually very proud of, and, and we think your readers will uh, view it as just, a, uh, just an amazing resource. Um, so we're uh, really pleased with it. Well, there's so much meat we could dig into about the book, but I thought it might be interesting to tackle two concepts that you address in the book that I think have some overlap, and this is based on our engagers out there in the audience, listening audience, a couple comments that have come in when I've uh, mentioned to people that I'd be interviewing you. And these are about cynicism and about the different generations. Uh, So for example, 
In an email to me, Bill asked, how do you inspire different generations? I seem to find it easier to inspire my younger staff who are not as jaded by life experience. How do you, how do you start to address that, Bob? Yeah, you know, it all depends um, on the culture, uh, the business environment, uh, because there are many research studies out there today um, that are telling us that this junior, this millennial, Gen Y group are the least engaged. So uh, somewhat of a contrarian response to the question, um, but the vast majority of organizations are struggling with this junior generation coming up and they're, and they're struggling with the cultures. Uh, and usually it, it, it has to do with cultures that maybe haven't uh, evolved enough. So the gentleman who raised the question, uh, I suspect, probably works in an organization uh, that is probably more cutting edge. Uh, perhaps it's more a fleet of foot. Maybe it's a technology-based company. But they're doing something right if he feels that the millennials seem to be more engaged than the older generation. It also might have to do with the timing. Uh, if you think of what's happened over the past five years, uh, it has been a tough window for the more mature employee who, you know, they've been through some ups and downs in the past, and they, I think they recognize the you know, recessionary dip that we took beginning in 2008-2009 was steeper than previously felt, and maybe that jaded you know, employee sentiment is resonating with that employee's firm, and maybe the junior-level employees just coming into the firm uh, don't uh, have that same baggage, that you know, they don't have the same context. In your book, you mentioned that the different generations communicate differently and they have different motivational drivers. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, let's take a look at communication first. Um, you know, us baby boomers, people like me, uh, we kind of grew up in a, you know, in a face-to-face meeting-centric culture. You know, my kids used to joke when I, you know, worked in corporate America, they, they would accuse me of being a full-time meeting attendee. Uh, and that's pretty common with, say, the baby boomer generation. Uh, well, the millennials are generally not a big meeting, uh, face-to-face meeting group, you know. Uh, their meetings tend to be kind of social networks where they can, you know, quickly communicate with a number of people um, without having to use their voice. And if you think about, you know, how we communicate in business, it's emails, it's email attachments, you know, please find attached this eight-page report. Uh, Well, the millennials, they don't even read newspapers. Um, So they're probably not going to be reading your eight-page attachment. So how are we, you know, changing how we communicate, not so much to stop what we're doing, but I encourage clients to start increasing the venues in which you communicate. So you might have to text. You might have to leverage YouTube videos. You might have to leverage town hall meetings. You don't want to give away your face-to-face meetings because there's nothing like face-to-face. And you're trying to bring the millennials along that we are going to have some FaceTime meetings. So it's not, you know, either or. It's trying to increase your communication arsenal in a way that plays to the millennials, Gen X, baby boomers, and even the remaining traditionalists that uh, are still in the workplace. One of the things that you talk about that's different among the generations, uh, or maybe has some commonalities, is 
how they connect to the purpose of your organization and whether you're doing a good job creating line of sight with the the, the purpose and the, the vision and the values of the organization. And I, I some of the some of the I think uh, skepticism that might come through is where you don't either the they're not seeing that connection there, or maybe in the case of the older employees, even if it is a mission driven organization, uh, maybe they've been hearing the same messages so long but not seeing any any progress. Do you have any thoughts about how to tackle those problems? Yeah, take a macro look first. Um, by all accounts, the millennials are the most purpose-centric generation in the history of the workforce. They are far less interested in what a company does than they are why do they do it in who the employer is. And what's fascinating about their desire, their desire is in conflict with what most companies spend their time on, which is telling the world what it is they sell, what it is they manufacture. And all you need to do is go into any any um, of your listeners' websites, and you'll see right on the website that telling the world what it is they sell. But in reality, the millennials are really interested in understanding who the employer is and why are they in business. You know, what is the purpose of their existence? And, you know, take a step back for a second. Uh, Western nation millennials are considered the wealthiest generation in the history of mankind. Hmm. And, of course, the wealth is from their parents. But they, you know, this is not post-World War II baby boomers, you know, all out there looking to buy the family's first automobile or the family's first home. This, for the most of us, it's a knowledge world we live in. And the millennials didn't grow up with the same fire in the belly from a wealth accumulation standpoint that some of us grew up with. So their focus is different than someone who maybe grew up in the 50s or the 60s or even the 70s. And, you know, they're going into interview wanting to know what is the firm's corporate social responsibility policy? Um, you know, how environmentally sensitive uh, is the firm? You know, is the firm practicing good environmental and global citizenship? What is the volunteer policy? What's the corporate match policy? Uh, and these are things that are coming out during the interview process. So like it or not, and to me there's very little downside of it, but employers, if they are smart, they are trying to work on what are their differentials that they can help articulate in their employer value proposition that will amplify their brand, not just what it is we sell, but who are we? And companies that do this really well, Starbucks, uh, Whole Foods, uh, Salesforce.com, Rackspace, uh, these are terrific examples of companies that are kind of melting together what it is we do and this kind of purpose centricity that kind of connects the employee's head and their heart, which is really what you're after, right? I mean, you're trying to get your employees to go above and beyond, and the research is overwhelming that if you can somehow get your employees focused on your purpose, you'll outperform your competitors in the marketplace. In fact, Jim Collins will say you outperform six times if you can get your employees rallying around your purpose and your values. 
How do you rally them around those purpose and values? One, another source of skepticism is a company comes out with a mission statement, they put it on the wall, they give everybody a, a, a lanyard with that's uh, supposed to hang around their neck or something like that, and it seems like it's just words on paper. And in the book, you talk a lot about a communication protocol, and you've got several tried and tested ways to communicate uh, and, and make those come alive. Can you share uh, one or two of those with us? Um, yeah. Um, you know, the communication protocol is a great example. Uh, you know, the jaded cynicism or skepticism, and this, by the way, is something that's shared with all generations, can take place if the leadership is communicating, say, purpose as a flavor of the month, or they view it as something that is, you know, good to do for our customers or, you know, you're only doing it because you think you have a better chance of attracting and retaining employees and you really don't believe it. So the best examples, I mean, these companies I mentioned, the reason Starbucks has been so successful, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they've been successful, but part of it is, you know, Chuck Schultz is their CEO and he absolutely believes in this kind of purpose-centric culture. And it kind of bleeds through all of their processes, policies, you know, the work culture nuances that make it kind of cool to work at Starbucks. And if you ask many of your listeners, high school daughters and sons, it's far more cool to get a job at Starbucks than it is to get a job at any other, you know, fast food type of employer. Why is that? And take a firm like Timberland. You know, Timberland makes boots. So it's, you know, they're not overly sexy like a Google or, you know, an Amazon or a Facebook type of employer. I mean, they've been around for a long time and they manufacture boots. Well, Jeff Swartz is their CEO and he's a legacy CEO from a grandfather and they believe deeply in corporate citizenship. So it's not coincidental that all of their employees, including part-time employees who work at the malls, have to do a community service week with pay. So those are the types of, you know, kind of internal practices that help confirm or validate what the company's talking about when it comes to, you know, this is what we do, but this is why we do it. And this line of sight is such an important area for, you know, the C-suite or the executive team to tackle, you know, where are we going? Why are we going there? And how can we build a culture that everyone understands the job they are in, they're in that job for a reason, and this is how it fits in to not only what we do, but why we do it. Another source of skepticism or another area that's very specific to employee engagement, when you look at a lot of large companies, one of the best practices that's often done is something you talk about extensively in the book, and that's completing an engagement survey. And I hear about cynicism from employees in completing another engagement survey. Oh boy, it's engagement survey time. Does this really matter? Does, does this actually, is this a true measurement? And is this actually going to make a difference in our work life and in the bottom line? What are, what are your thoughts about engagement surveys? Yeah, I, um, my firm, the Employee Engagement Group, does engagement surveys. And I've actually, Jesse, walked away from business when I presented to a leadership team. And I sensed that they're looking to check the box 
and I feared that they will do a survey and they will not do anything with the results. And that is the single greatest area of scorn with employees as it relates to engagement surveys. Somewhere in their history, they remember taking a survey and the company did a horrific job of communicating what the results were and building action plans in a way that resonates with their employees. So I tell clients, I tell audiences when I keynote, do not do an engagement survey. If you're not absolutely convinced that you plan on listening and doing something with the results of the survey, and you're better off doing nothing than raising expectations and over-promising and ultimately under-delivering, which will create that cynicism, skeptic group of employees. So that that's kind of problem A. Problem B with engagement surveys is actually quite different, but with the same end result. Problem B is the leadership team who gets overly excited. I mean, they are like gung-ho. Uh, they do the survey, they bring together a task team, uh, they're hungry to tackle the world, and they overcommit. So they announce, you know, this is what we plan on doing, and they overcommit and underdeliver because in the vast majority of cases, you know, when you ask your employees what they think, uh, at that window of time that you get the results, you know, you have everyone's attention. You just, you know, commissioned a vendor to do those survey results. You have task teams. And you have this window of time where, you know, born from great intentions, that you make the mistake of trying to do too much. And in my opinion, firms are as guilty as trying to do too much as those firms that do the survey and then do nothing with the results. So it, it's, it's, it's actually two ends of the spectrum is where firms kind of fail uh, when they commit on an engagement survey. I had an HR leader who heard feedback from some cynical employees as they were coming up to their next engagement survey. And the comment was something along the lines of, that their work team, including their manager, was really encouraging everybody to purposely score high on the survey because departments or teams that had low scores end up having to do a lot more work. So if we get low scores, then we got to do all this action planning and there's more work to do. So your life is going to be easier if you just be nice on the engagement survey. Have you run into that? Yeah, that's, you know, that's, a uh, just think of that. That is such a dysfunctional message. <laughs> and, you know, uh, firms, by the way, that try to do surveys in-house without having, say, a professional objective counsel, you know, providing them through the process, you know, might experience those kind of crazy examples. What you often hear is the, you know, the manager who tries to bribe his or her employees because they don't want to look, you know, particularly bad. So they'll offer pizza parties, um, you know, if they score a certain uh, way, you know, bowling night uh, or uh, worse, you know, time off if we, you know, reach 95% completion or if we're at, you know, 80% favorable, you know, and all you're doing is, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a potential problem and bribing your workforce. Um, I have a, um, a white paper that I wrote uh, that resides on our website, employengagement.com, under the resources page, uh, called The Do's and Don'ts of an Employee Engagement Survey. And, you know, your listeners that don't even want to buy the dummies book can pick up a pretty easy resource that can give them some um, best practices on what to do and what not to do. 
Yeah, that's a good. That sounds like a good resource. And you do in the book have some do's and don'ts, uh, especially on how to communicate the engagement effort. So if the company wants to sort of uh, head off those kinds of short-term bribery and that sort of cynical viewpoint, are there one or two things that they can do to communicate appropriately? Yeah, I um, I counsel clients that pick. You know, you really need to prioritize what are the things you plan on doing. Make a real diligent effort at um, selecting fewer than too many. And part of every action plan should be a robust communication commitment. And that communication commitment has to run the duration between surveys. So if you plan on doing a survey Uh, say in 18 months, a follow-up survey. You need to build a communication plan for the next 18 months. This is what we're doing to analyze the results. This is the task team that we've assembled. This is the results of the task team. This is what we're going to be embarking on over the next 18 months. Uh, these are the things that we also view as important, but we can't afford to tackle these now because we're going to tackle these three things. And we are going to communicate back to you every month uh, for the next 18 months on how we are doing as an organization tackling these uh, areas that we believe uh, have great impact organizationally. So it becomes a communication commitment, and very few companies do that. So what happens is they do a survey, there's a flurry of activity early on, and then everyone goes back to their life of you know work, and then 18 months later, two months later, uh, perhaps the organization did many great things, but the organization did a terrible job letting the employees know what are the things that did indeed take place. And employees can be a jaded lot. So what happens? Employees take another survey, and while they're filling it out, they say, yeah, whatever happened? Didn't we do this before? I didn't hear anything uh, about last time we did a survey because the company did a terrible job of branding, communicating, reminding employees what took place since the last survey. And what's your recommendation as far as how frequently to conduct a survey? Yeah, even though my firm is in the survey business, uh, I would never suggest a company do annual surveys. And the companies that suggest that, I think, are more interested in you know, trying to get more business out of the client uh, than protecting the client's best interest. Because to do an engagement survey well... Um, you cannot possibly do a survey, analyze the results, establish macro task teams. Macro task teams are looking at company-wide results. Establish micro task teams. Micro task teams are looking at department or business unit-specific results because business units are going to have their own set of norms versus the company overall. Put plans in place. Monitor the effectiveness of those plans and have that all done within 12 months. It's just too uh, short of a window of time. And I'm also appreciative of the fact that companies have all sorts of other initiatives going on. You know, people aren't just sitting around thinking about, you know, when do we tackle our next survey? You know, there's quality <laughs> improvement initiatives, there's business development, there's cost you know, reduction initiatives, there's you know, R&D initiatives. You know, engagement's only one small uh, 
you know, area that you're tackling within a whole suite of strategic items. And to try to do it every year, I believe you're setting yourself up for jaded employees because there's not enough time to truly move the needle to have it make a difference so that when you're responding in year two, you've seen a difference. And it just begs for, you know, the jaded employee to say, well, I haven't seen anything new happen around here since the last survey. And are pulse surveys something that you generally recommend or is that more on a case-by-case basis? You know, for those organizations who who just can't help themselves, but they want to do a check-in before 18 months, I I always suggest uh, a pulse survey. Uh, And a pulse survey would be a, you know, much smaller survey, maybe, you know, 9 to 13 questions, uh, and you're just doing a sample of, hey, you know, is there progress? Are we seeing some areas of improvement? And I usually encourage companies to do the pulse survey in-house. You can actually do it pretty quickly, you know, via SurveyMonkey. It's not going to give you department breakdowns without, you know, some degree of complexity, but you can do a company-wide pulse survey pretty easy. I also, for those companies that are really strapped from a budget standpoint, uh, I also encourage them if they're, you know, virgins in the survey world, uh, that a pulse survey might be, you know, the first step if you're, you know, interested in just getting a company-wide idea of what people are thinking and, you know, you're not yet ready to tackle a full company-wide engagement survey. Now, do you recommend pulse surveys kind of only to those companies that just can't stand to wait 18 or 24 months, or is it sort of a general good best practice? Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes you might want to do a, you know, a pulse survey for a specific business. Uh, so I do a lot of uh, strategic uh, offsite. So we'll take a leadership team offsite, um, and it might be a business unit. So say it's a retail store, it might be the leadership team of the Western region. And often what I will do is send out a pulse survey um, you know, to the employees who work for those stores, uh, and then we'll share the results as a leadership team. Uh, so there are ways to look at a pulse survey as almost a diagnostic tool where you're doing it for a specific business for a specific window of time, which is helping that leadership team look at, hey, this is what employees are saying, which is an important consideration when we're looking at, you know, our strategic plan for our region. We have another comment that came in from our Engager audience. On Facebook, Dina says, I think engagement surveys can be an effective point-in-time measurement, and if there are action plans followed through, then follow-ups to measure change. However, if not, companies lose credibility pretty quickly. At least that has been my experience. They have to be part of a larger program of engagement activities. Is it kind of the larger program of engagement activities that you're talking about communicating frequently on a, on a monthly or at least quarterly basis? or Because you're not just talking about the, the survey itself for the next 18 months. Yeah, um the short answer is yes. You know, you embed it in your communication and what you're communicating in, inside the company. And you're finding, you know, reasons to kind of remind people that this new initiative, this new idea came from the engagement survey. So you're doing a little bit of taking credit for what came out of the survey, but you're reminding them of it in a way that isn't, you know, in your face every single month. This is the employee survey newsletter. You know, you're kind of embedded, embedding it in your regular communication process. Uh, now, I, I think what I heard in that question uh, was even bigger, though. And, and the question was, well, if I work for 
a company that the leadership team isn't really focused on this engagement stuff at all. And, you know, the bottom line focus, they could care less what employees uh, really think, you know, they're trying to just, you know, manage the business on the bottom line and treat employees uh, in a way that the employees don't feel like they're a real valuable asset. In that type of culture to, you know, to launch a survey out of the blue without having it be in the context of, you know, why are we doing it? Yeah, you're going to have a jaded population because it seems inconsistent with the culture of the business. It reminds me of a story that you share in the book uh, when you were, before you were in, in the consulting field, uh, you were at a, you were the, one of the leaders at a, at a company who wanted to become an employer of choice. And uh, the leadership was worried about skepticism and even thought about uh, how employees would react and, and thought, gee, maybe we shouldn't even tell employees what we're, what we're trying to do as we go about increasing employee engagement. Yeah, um, we had some leaders who were afraid, actually, of even, you know, applying for a best place to work award, you know, like the Fortune's 100 best place to work. Or they were worried about communicating that our goal was to have an engaged workforce because they feared um, cynicism. So, you know, we had one business unit that went from an office environment to an open workplace environment. And although these open workplaces in 2014 are kind of cool, uh, in 2001, they weren't as cool. You know, people were still uh, hungry to have their own space. Uh, and I recall, you know, jaded employee feedback when we moved, you know, to this workstation environment. Uh, and, you know, these engineers would say, you know, these aren't workstations. You're sticking me in a cube and you call yourself an employer of choice. So, you know, there was there was often this, well, you know, let's not tell our employees what we're doing because if we have a layoff, they're going to throw it back in our face. And, you know, it does take some uh, finesse in your messaging. I've always been a big fan, Jesse, that if you're committed to uh, having your employees feel like they are truly valued, then you need to tell them. You need to tell them that, you know, we value you. And we need to let them know that if there is a layoff, we're going to treat those that are impacted um, like we would be treating family members if they were being downsized. And, you know, uh, we're running a business. We can't run a business and guarantee employment for all employees for life. That is not realistic. But we're going to treat our employees respectful. And we are committed to our employees, but it's a business. And there are some hiccups along the way. And, you know, how we treat people during, you know, a downsizing, uh, we're always going to be respectful. We're always going to be, you know, generous. Uh, we want our employees to see that we care deeply about our employees because that's who we are. And I've always been a fan of being transparent if that's what you believe and not, you know, kind of resist going there for fear of jaded skepticism at the first hiccup. Well, the book is Employee Engagement for Dummies. The author is Bob Kelleher. In addition to being an author, he is a public speaker and the founder of the Employee Engagement Group. Bob, how can people find out more about this book and about your work? Yeah, uh, Employee Engagement for Dummies is everywhere. If you just type in um, on Amazon, it'll pop up uh, on Amazon. It'll pop up on the web. It'll pop up on Barnes & Noble. Uh, someone just told me they saw it on their bookstore. 
uh, inside their neighborhood, so it's appearing everywhere. Uh, you can also go on my website, employeeengagement.com. Uh, into one click, you could order it if you want bulk copies. There's a place on employeeengagement.com if you want to order, you know, boxes and boxes of them to give to your managers. And I believe we're, we even posted a free chapter, Jesse. So if you go on employeeengagement.com, uh, you'll see one of our chapters posted free and people can kind of download it and test it before they spend $20 or whatever it's costing these days. And we will also provide links to all the resources that Bob mentioned, including the white paper on the do's and don'ts of employee engagement on our show notes for this for this interview. Bob Kelleher, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, one other little um, tool that people might want to kind of look into, um, we released a video called Who's Sinking Your Boat about the state of the workforce uh, uh, today, and it's based on a lot of great research by Gallup and uh, Dale Carnegie and uh, Towers Watson and all the big consultancies. And it's a four-minute video that your your viewers can share with the leadership team. It helps define the, you know, the term engagement, makes a business case for engagement, uh, and it gives you some key things to do. And, and in just a very short window of time, it's had uh, uh, close to 40,000 views. The best that we could tell is the fastest trending business video out there today. So I invite your audience to, you know, just go on the web and look for who's sinking your boat. It's a great little tool to help galvanize some of your leaders behind this message. I agree. I actually saw that video a while back and liked it so much that I, I had to tweet it to my followers. And uh, we'll, we'll include that as well. And I'll also read All right, Engagers, before I, we wrap it's up it's this episode, I just want to reiterate that I think Employee Engagement for Dummies yeah, really thanks, is a fantastic, so much for comprehensive guide great, for uh, boosting employee engagement. Well, great fun. It goes into a lot of detail on a wide variety of topics that together help drive employee engagement. And Bob really shares from his 30 years in the trenches very generously. There's a lot of detail in here, including specific engagement survey questions, uh, specific communication protocols for how to communicate survey results and keep people engaged through until the next engagement survey, how to establish employee engagement committees, and, and then just even broader than specific engagement survey activities, he provides things like interview questions to make sure that you have a greater likelihood of hiring employees who will be engaged, performance appraisals, exit interview questions, a lot of specifics on creating recognition programs and just providing more recognition in general, a lot of good specifics on onboarding employees to make sure they get off to the right start, feeling very engaged. So lots of great meat to this book. And also just a comment, I read this book on my Kindle and a lot of times books that are in a format like the dummy books are with sidebars and call out boxes, sometimes those don't translate to Kindle very well. But the Wiley publishers of the dummies series really know how to do their business and it was a joy to read on the Kindle. All, all those things flowed through just the way you would expect and it was easy to read. So again, the book is Employee Engagement for Dummies and on our show notes for this episode, you'll find find all the links to the free resources that Bob mentioned, as well as a link to his book and to his website. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 79 as in episode 79. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. 
Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 